you guys pray with me before we get into God's word? Father in heaven, we um, come before you with, with thirsty hearts. Um, we bring in uh, so many uh, cares and anxieties from this week. We recognize that Jesus has extended an offer to care, carry our burdens with us, to come alongside of us. Um, if I'm honest, that's often not the posture of my heart. Um, so I pray that even in this next couple of minutes as we get into your word, we would feel a burden lift from us. We would feel grace poured out into our hearts, recognizing that your grace is inexhaustible. So come, Lord, speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So a few years back, I heard a story. It was talking about Sherlock Holmes and Watson, those popular characters. And it was talking about a camping story, a camping trip they went on, where they went out and they, they were enjoying some time in the wilderness and nature. And they had a, a really nice dinner. And then after finishing off a bottle of wine, they made their way to the tent to sleep it off during the night. And a couple hours into the middle of the night, Watson, uh, or should I say Holmes, nudges Watson. And he says to him, Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson pondered for a minute and always eager to impress his genius friend, replied, well, I see millions of stars. And Holmes said, what does that tell you? And Watson said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is probably about 3.15. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant in comparison. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Why, Holmes? What does it tell you? Holmes waited for a minute and said, Watson, you idiot, somebody has stolen our tents. <laughs> see, it's easy to miss the point, right? Trying to sound clever. And we missed the big point. And it's easy to happen, too, when we come to, to Scripture. It's good for us to roll up our sleeves and to get our hands dirty as we are excavating God's Word. But we need to make sure that we never miss the big picture of what Scripture is. And so since my job today is to unpack the text for us, it seems like it'd be helpful since the text starts, the point is this, right? If I'm trying to tell you what the point is, if the text starts, the point is this, that might seem like it's a very helpful way to start. But even when it says this, if we haven't been in the stream of thought with the author, we can still miss the point. And so to that end, I just want to take a few minutes at the outset here to kind of explain our philosophy of preaching at PRISM. So give me your minds just for a couple of minutes. Well, actually, for the whole time. I always want your minds. But bear with me as we go through a quick philosophy on preaching. At PRISM, our primary practice when it comes to the Sunday preaching is to go through books of the Bible. For instance, last year we did Hebrews, and this year we're going through 2 Corinthians. This is known as expository preaching. It's when you go through verse by verse and try to expose what Scripture itself is saying. This is to be contrasted with topical preaching, where you take one topic and then you spend a certain amount of weeks on that topic. And I should say there's nothing wrong with, with topical preaching, per se. We do that as well. But our bread and butter as a church will be expository preaching. Because we want to stay within the thoughts of God's word. Because it's so easy to take things out of context. This happens 
all the time. It's a, there's a reason why cable news is a multi-billion dollar corporation and industry. They seem to very rarely have a problem with taking a few words somebody said, abstracting them from the context, making a shocking headline out of them, knowing you'll click on it, and then when you click on it, oh, by the way, there's 10,000 promoted stories, which is where they make all their money. So that's free, by the way, in case you were wondering, that's how that works. So they know the human heart and how easily we can be manipulated. Just this week, I uh, saw a headline, and the headline uh, read, it was on a, a, a news outlet that I, I frequent. It said, Jeb Bush thinks Americans should work longer hours. And then it had his critics, of course, with all their tweets saying, this just shows how disconnected Jeb Bush is from the average American. And one of his critics said, Jeb Bush just wants you to work your fingers to the bone. That's all he cares about. And I thought, man, Jeb, take it easy, brother. He was my governor in Florida. And I thought, that didn't really sound like something Jeb would say. So I actually did click on it. And in the context, what he said was, there's a lot of people with part-time jobs who would like to work full-time jobs. Uh, and if we're going to grow our economy, we need to have more full-time jobs. So Americans need to work longer hours. So that's just a, an example of how easy it is to abstract something somebody said. Now, now, don't worry. I have no intention of making a political point. I'm fully aware that this happens on every angle from every side, and it's only going to ramp up until next November. So get ready. But it shows us this is why we need to guard ourselves when we come to this, uh, Scripture and know our own hearts. We're always seeking to hear things through our own lenses. So at Prism Church, we will do primarily expository preaching because we want to stay within the stream of God's mind. But uh, the Bible is, is, is not a collection of fortune cookies, as it were. It's not just, well, here's a question, so here's the answer to that. But rather, it's a worldview. It's a history of God's redemptive story for us. And so we want to stay in that and get the mind of Christ in the process. Jesus himself actually spoke to this uh, in John 17. It's, it's the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. And it's an amazing prayer. It's called the uh, high priestly prayer. And in it, he actually prays for us here this morning. But listen to what he says. John 17. He's praying, saying, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So we want to be sanctified in the truth. And Jesus tells us what the truth is. It's God's word. And the reason I'm making this point this morning is because even though Paul says the point is this, which seems like a pretty clear statement on what he wants us to know, what, comes, what follows has been taken by so many so-called ministries and created entire the, um, theologies based off of this one text. It says, whoever spares sowingly, excuse me, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Joshua, if we go to this next picture, here's an example of a ministry who, who really has this down to a science. I didn't zoom in. That's probably for your benefit. But... If you'll notice, for $100, you can sow what's called a, a covenant seed. For $200, you can get a double portion seed. And this next one I really like because it's so specific. For $273, you get a recovery seed. And for only $1,000, you can get the highly sought-after triple favor seed. 
All from this one verse. There's entire ministries who are trying to um, pray after the gullible and, and, and those who are seeking God's quote-unquote favor by sowing seeds. I found this after 10 seconds of a search on sowing seeds. Um, so today, we continue on in our Second Corinthians series. And more specifically, we do continue waiting on the uh, subject of Christian generosity. As we learned last week, Paul isn't writing about generosity arbitrarily. He's not writing in a vacuum, but rather he is writing to a specific audience with a specific purpose. There was a church in Jerusalem that was very poor. They were in extreme poverty, and Paul has been trying to get a, get a collection for them. And though they had initially been very uh, joyful and zealous in their response, as the clouds of controversy had come to Corinth, uh, it had kind of put a damper on their enthusiasm. So last week, we ended with this text, which says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. And then beginning with our text today, it feeds into, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So here's where we're going with the rest of the sermon. I want to look at what Paul is not saying by this text and then give you two points from Scripture to prove that and then after that show you what Paul is saying and have three points on that. So here's what Paul is not saying by whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul is not constructing a formula for increasing wealth. He's not constructing a formula for increasing our wealths. The first reason we know this is the words of Jesus himself. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. Here Jesus explicitly says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because things are bad? Not at all. Scripture never says that it's bad to own things. It never says it's even bad to be rich. Jesus just warns our hearts because he knows our inclinations. As Christians, we know we are free to enjoy all of God's blessings. Everything we have is a blessing from God. We can fall off the other side. There's a whole philosophy. It's called asceticism, which thinks it's more spiritual to live intentionally in poverty. As Christians, we're not ascetics. We know that God does mean to bless his children. 1 Timothy 4 instructs us in this. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This is a verse that many of us need to embrace. It's good to receive the good blessings from God. But our Lord knows our hearts better than we know them. And he knows that we are prone to find our security and our identity in things. Things that were meant to be good blessings from God can actually become small gods to us. And rather than serving the one who gives, we start to serve his gifts instead. And Jesus knows that this is our tendency. So he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Rather, seek an eternal treasure, because you're an eternal being, and you were made to enjoy the things of eternity. 
The second reason we know that Paul is not constructing a formula for increasing wealth is this, the testimonies of the apostles. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor, and here's the key, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here, this is Paul writing again, and he speaks directly to the issue. And once again, he notice he doesn't condemn being rich. He just says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather set your hope on God. If you guys have tracked any of the uh, wildfires that have been happening, I think five homes so far have been destroyed. It was a very bizarre scene out on, I think it was 15. Uh, cars were just catching fire. It looked like a scene from Terminator. And, and, and this shows you the uncertainty of riches. There are 10,000 things that can happen this next week that will change your financial situation. Things are not a bad thing. It's only when we make them ultimate things. And so Paul is not going to construct a formula to help us guarantee what Jesus says, this could ruin your soul. So if you're considering spending $1,000 to sow your triple favor seed, don't do that. That'd be really stupid. I'll just tell you that. So, So for the rest of the sermon, let's look at what Paul actually is saying. And he is saying this. Paul is commending a framework for understanding God's grace. Paul is commending a framework for understanding God's grace. And I have three points from our text to try and convince you of this. The first one is this. We see that God is for our joy. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do you realize that God is happy? When you think about God, do you think about God being happy with you? Do you realize he actually really does desire your joy more than you even desire it yourself? God loves a cheerful giver. The problem is, if we don't see God as happy, we can take this as kind of like a, a childish manipulation or God, you better give because God loves a cheerful giver and you better be happy about it. It's kind of the whole cleanliness is next to godliness. But that's not what it's saying at all. And that's a really tragic reading of this text because it's showing us something so much more important about the heart of God. But when we come to Scripture, if we don't see God as happy and delighting in us, it's going to change the way we read everything. Some of you, if you don't hear anything else I say, Hear this from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that incredible? God really is for your joy. And when he sees that our actions prove that the gospel is taking root, he delights in this. He sees that we've actually entered into the true story. If you know somebody who's had a heart transplant, you'll know one of the greatest concerns as whether or not that heart will will take. So over the first couple months, they'll start to perform biopsies to make sure that the heart is taking. 
And in a sense, this is what has happened to us the moment we became Christians. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So when God sees that you have become a cheerful giver, he says, it's taken. The new heart has taken. He's not glad because he needs your money. He's glad because your new heart has taken. And he loves to see a cheerful giver because he loves to see when the gospel is manifested through us. God really is for our joy. And he knows that deep abiding joy is to be found in a life that is directed outwards. That's why he loves a cheerful giver, not because he needs anything from us. One of the things that I'm most thankful for in my life is uh, some of the men in my family have been beautiful models of generosity. No more more than my uh, Grandpa Bob. So you met Grandpa George last week. Well, this is Bob. Do you have that picture, uh, Josh? Bob is the kindest, sweetest man I've ever met. Um, He is so generous. And I remember my dad telling me a story when I was younger of my grandpa. He owned uh, some apartment complexes in um, New Kingston, uh, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. It's just a township right by Harrisburg. And Bob had a lot of tenants, and a lot of them would take advantage of his generosity. And there was one tenant in particular who was behind on their rents. Um, And even if they were current on their rent, it still wasn't his responsibility to fill their oil for heat. But this specific tenant who was behind on their rent had no oil. And so during the winter, my grandpa would go and and fill his his oil tank for him. And my dad said to me, I just could never understand why he did that. This person is taking advantage of you, and you're filling their oil. Well, just 10 years ago, my dad purchased a property in Orlando, Florida. And he had this one tenant, and I don't know how exactly it happened, but the dude was like $3,000 behind, and the rent was only $750. And my dad was trying to be gracious and trying to help the guy. And uh, when Christmas came that year, my dad gave them a gift card to the grocery store in town. And it was such a testimony to me of my dad watching my grandpa give joyfully, just out of response for who he is, and that started to trickle down into my dad. And I'm so thankful for that. So as always, the Lord is after our hearts He's not into behavior modification. Now, the text does say we should make plans to give. It says decide in your own heart. But God loves a cheerful giver because he sees that the new heart has taken. The second reason is this. God's grace is what makes giving possible. God's grace is even what makes giving possible. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency... In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of a simple but easily forgotten fact. Even your ability to give is because of God's grace to you. Absolutely everything that we have is from God to begin with. And God is eager to show himself faithful in our lives, and he's eager to pour out more grace. But here's the reality. Once again, God doesn't need anything from us. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So whatever you do, it's only by the grace of God that you can even do that. So if you're a teacher, God created your students. And if you're a videographer or a photographer, God created everything that you're shooting. And if you're an engineer, God created an orderly universe so that you could create structure and create form. Everything is from God. He is the fount of every blessing 
Psalm 50 says it this way. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Yes, this should humble us. But this should also free us, friends. Because the reality is, you are not ultimately Lord of your life, and that is good news. If you were the Lord of your life, ultimately that would mean that you would be on a relentless hamster wheel of trying to achieve, and you would be responsible for holding everything together. And that not only is impossible, that is tiring. God is the one who is able to make all grace abound. And if we're honest— Though we know this, many of us do live functionally like we have to keep everything together. And Paul in this text is reminding us, God wants to make all grace abound to you. And when you join in in giving, you are entering into his stream of grace. Even as earthly fathers, you've experienced this, right? Your birthday is coming, so mom takes the kids to the store and buys them some presents for you. And then when your birthday arrives, they come into the kitchen with the, bir- with the presents behind their back. I don't know this yet, but I'm imagining this is how it goes. And they present the gifts to the dad. And they're so eager to see him open it up because they want to see him love what they got him. And so the dad starts to unwrap it slowly, and the kids are just bursting And then when he finally opens it, they're just thrilled to see that they have gotten something that their dad delights in. But the dad knows where the gift came from. It was his money that bought the gift. But it doesn't soften his joy at all knowing that, because he loves to see his children cheerfully giving, knowing that he is the one who's able to make all grace abound to them. The reality is they couldn't give him anything else if he tried. They are totally dependent on his grace towards them. And he loves to see them take his grace and give with it and find joy in that. So it is with us and God. Everything we have is from God, and he invites us to live generously so that we learn to trust him. And he promises to continue giving us grace for every season of our life, friends. Like with my dad, though his tenant was behind a couple of months on his rent, he... he, um, extended grace, and I actually talked to him yesterday, and he said his current tenant just signed for six years in a row um, and has had no problems. And this is an example, I think, of what Paul's talking about. No, my, my dad didn't win the lottery afterwards, but he has now had a faithful tenant who has given him no problems, has paid every month. And sure, we could say that this is just a coincidence. We could say that, but as Christians, we know better. It's God's grace. When we're faithful, God is eager to prove himself faithful. In his first letter to the church uh, in Corinth, Paul makes this point rather straightforwardly. 1 Corinthians 4 says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? When we understand that everything is grace, our lives will start to quest out towards others because we're eager to experience more of God's grace in our lives. So, so far, our text has shown us that about the grace of God, He is for our joy— His grace makes giving possible. And now finally, point three. Through God's grace, we have a righteousness that endures forever. Verses 9 and 10. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. This is speaking of us. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase 
the harvest of your righteousness. In the final verses here, Paul is actually drawing from two Old Testament scriptures. He is uh, distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever is actually a direct quote from Psalm 112.9. And it's easy to be in this text on giving and just kind of skip through this part, but I would like to submit to you that this is the Watson, somebody has stolen our tent moment. This is the heart of of everything. Yes, in the context, Paul is saying that the collection for the church in Jerusalem will increase the harvest of righteousness that's happening worldwide through the gospel. But right in the middle of it, he reaches back to ground us firmly in the greatest truth in the world. Through God's grace, by faith, we have a righteousness that will last forever. And it's absolutely free. As someone once said, though, it's free it's not cheap. In a few chapters back, Paul grounds the righteousness that we received in Christ. In chapter 5, he says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, friends, this is the bedrock of our existence. It's the righteousness of Christ that has been freely given to us. We don't become righteous when we become generous. We don't become righteous because we're moral. That's every other religion on earth. Every other religion on earth teaches you, what do I need to do to get to God? And Christianity is totally the opposite. It says that God came to us and did what we could not do. Because our biggest problem is we were all born with the mar of sin on us. And that's a problem because God is holy. And we were created to be in relationship with him. And there was nothing that we could do to fix that. And so 2,000 years ago, God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he went to the cross. And what happened on the cross is what's called the great exchange. On the cross, God, Jesus got all of our sin. But we got all of his righteousness. And that's why Paul says this, friends. This is not a text to be read quickly or softly. Your righteousness will endure forever. Let that fall on you just for a minute. Your righteousness will last forever. It is totally finished. You are totally secure with God if you have, by simple faith, trusted in Jesus Christ you get his righteousness. So when God sees you, all he sees is his beloved son. He doesn't have a tally mark of how much you've given, what you've done. He sees Jesus. And when you start to act like Jesus, he loves it because he loves his son. Your righteousness will endure forever. In the book of Romans, Paul makes this point beautifully. And this was the text that absolutely changed Martin Luther's life because he had been so much under the weight of doing, especially as a Catholic priest. And then he read this text, and it blew up his world. And this was actually uh, the fuse of the Reformation, as it were. Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 
the righteous will live by faith. And that offer is extended to everybody this morning. Simple faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished, and you will be righteous forever. By way of conclusion, we're going to transition into a time of response. We are going to respond by giving. Now notice what the text says. We're not looking for reluctant givers or under compulsion, but what each of us has decided. We want to give cheerfully because God has been so gracious to us. And as the band comes up, we will also respond uh, through communion where we remember in tangible form what it cost for us to get the righteousness of Christ. At prison, we take the bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus, and we dip it in the wine, which represents his shed blood for us, which has secured our righteousness. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for the plan of salvation which we could not have accomplished. We thank you that you haven't left this a mystery to us, but rather have given us your word, which shows us what you have done for us, how we can be made right with you. So I pray, Lord, as we continue on as a church, going through your word, you would shape our minds, you would give us the mind of Christ, that we would live lives that are propelled by grace, not trying to earn grace, but recognizing you have already given us everything. We thank you, Lord, that you are happy with us because of Christ, that you smile on us, even as the text says, you delight in us. That is amazing. I know there's many in, in the chapel this morning who need to hear that that you delight in them. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would apply that truth. Let them feel your face shining on them. And we will be sure to glorify you in Christ's name.